Hello, and welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. I'm your host, Allison R. Brown, Executive Director of the Communities for Just Schools Fund, or CJSF, where we provide resources and support to community-based organizations that are working to ensure equity in their schools. Go to cjsfund.org to subscribe to our e-newsletter. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtags C4JS or Communities for Just Schools. That's with the number four. Today on Schoolhouse, we are welcoming Mark Bayard, director of the Black Worker Initiative at the Institute for Policy Studies. He's also the founder of the Lee Bayard Group. He was the founding executive director of the Worker Institute at Cornell University, and he is a leading expert on racial equity and organizing strategies and has extensive experience in building partnerships between labor, faith groups, and civil rights communities. Mark is the author of the forthcoming biography, Standing Together in Service, William Lucy, Civil Rights and the American Labor Movement. Currently, and what we'll talk about today, Mark has a new project called Say Their Names. He is working to collect the stories of mothers whose children, mostly black children, have been killed by police or vigilantes. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. You know, it's been a a hard couple of weeks. The past couple of weeks have been. We have seen the police shooting of Terrence Crutcher in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We've seen the police shooting now. The video was released of the shooting of Keith Lamont Scott in Charlotte, North Carolina. Will you share a bit about your work? Well, you know, the the Say Their Names Project really does come out of all of this tragedy that we have been seeing over the last few years with police and vigilante brutality. It is focused on telling the stories from the victims' families, telling their perspective as to both the suffering that they have endured, but also the changes and the challenges that that suffering has brought about. And in particular, talking about some of the policy implications that these families have taken on in order to change the system uh, based upon the suffering that they've had. Mm -hmm. So who are the families that you've spoken with? The families of what victims have you been talking to? So the project is in its early stages. About a year ago, I was at the Movement for Black Lives convening in Cleveland, Mm -hmm. and I had the opportunity to spend some time with Eric Garner's mother. Mm -hmm. It was a wonderful opportunity where we just got to sit down in a pizza joint Mm -hmm. and just talk about her son. And she just told me so many things about her son, who he was as a person, you know, who he was, you know, before the incident. And it was just information that you never heard, even though you've got all these 24-hour news channels. It was just information that you never heard about the person. Hmm. And so I was there actually with a good friend of mine and a photographer, and we were at the Movement for Black Lives because we were presenting a report that we had just done looking at the power of narrative change in labor Mm -hmm. um, and with unions, particularly with a focus on African-American women. And coming off of just completing that project and having spent that time um, with Mrs. Garner, I realized that 
there needed to be a similar project that really allowed the families themselves to tell their story, to talk about their grief, but to talk about the things that they wanted to see changed and to talk about the policy implications that needed to be done. Because, you know, coming out of incidents like Sandy Hook, there have been families who have stood up and said, you know, gun control is a major issue. That's right. Years ago, we had, you know, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, uh, which, which still exists. And they took their tragedy and turned it into political reality. Mm-hmm. These families are trying to do the same, but mm-hmm. they don't have the same access to resources. They don't have the same megaphones. And so I really wanted this project to collect their stories, but reflect their individual goals and hopes for their children or their their brothers and sisters or their cousins, and also really talk about the change that they wanted to see. Mm -hmm. So that was really the impetus for the project. And so what we've done over the last few months is talk to individual families and really ask if they want to share their story, mm-hmm. you know, in, in this manner. We're not assuming anything. We, we definitely have talked to family uh, one at a time and said, hey, is this something that you would like to do? Mm-hmm. Is this some way that you'd like to share it? If if you would, we would like to do our project, which would culminate in the end into what would sort of be sort of a what we envision to be a coffee table book. Mm-hmm. That would have maybe 20 to 25 stories from families across the country, some that are better known, Mm -hmm. some that are much lesser known. Like we really also want to document stories that we don't hear. You know, in some ways, stories that didn't have a videotape or Mm. a cell phone video attached to it. So they weren't as well known and didn't go viral. Yeah. Uh, we want to look at stories even from the last, you know, 16 years. Like mm-hmm. we want to not just look at the last two or three years. We want to go back at least to 2000. So for people to get a better sense that this level of police and vigilante brutality has been going on for some time. I mean, that's really the goal. We want to tell stories from the, the East Coast, the West Coast, from the South, from the Midwest, mm-hmm. uh, to really give people a holistic view and to put it all into one document that can both serve the purpose for, you know, historians to actually have ha- have this information captured, but also can be a ready to read and accessible pop culture piece that the average person, maybe they don't know a whole lot about this. Maybe they don't ever envision themselves out on the street protesting, but they actually want to sit down and learn and hear from the families themselves. We hope that mm-hmm. this project will be a vehicle where both the activist and someone coming in new to the movement or new to these issues can feel like this is an entree point to really understanding a window to Black families and also a window to Black history. Mm-hmm. And again, the goal is, you know, people think about the families and they think this is going to be about suffering. And it's not. It's about healing yeah. and it's about change and it's about the progress that these families want to see. And I really appreciate the connection to policy, that they also are shaping policy or policy advocacy. Who are the some of the victims that whose families you so, working so with? So some of the families that we've talked to already, for example, uh, John Crawford was killed a couple of years ago in Ohio, mm-hmm. um, you know, at a Walmart. Yeah. And his mother, you know, has bravely agreed to be a part of the project and mm. to tell the story of John. And so that's one example. We hope to work with Eric Garner's mother. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've mm-hmm. sat down with her subsequently and, and invited her to be a part of this project. Um, mm-hmm. And she said yes. A sister by the name of Colette Flanagan, who is a perfect example of turning tragedy into activism, you know, Colette formed an organization, Mothers Against Police Brutality. Mm-hmm. She's based in Dallas, Texas. Her son, Clinton, was killed in 2013, mm-hmm. I believe. And even recently, you know, we, we had these, uh, these, these shootings in Dallas, mm-hmm. um, and we had so much praise for the Dallas police force. But I think activists like Colette, while they 
understand and acknowledge, you know, the important role that that police play. They also want to talk about the fact that police in Dallas have also killed unarmed mm-hmm. black men. And so the story needs to be more holistic than what's been portrayed on, you know, the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. And there needs to be more conversations between the community and police and there needs to be more accountability. And so those are the kinds of individuals and organizations that we're working with, ones who, have, again, have taken their stories and have tried to turn it into issues of, well, does that mean the local attorney general has to be changed? Does that mean the police commissioner has to be changed? Does that mean laws have to be changed? What about gun control in our city? Um, you know, what about alternative programming for youth? Like, it's not just the mothers, uh, mm-hmm. even though the mothers, I think, are probably the most impactful symbol of this change. And you've seen uh, many of these mothers you know, behind uh, Secretary Hillary Clinton at yeah. events. You've seen some of these mothers in recent Beyonce videos. Yeah. So they are, they are a very powerful force, particularly mm-hmm. collectively. Mm-hmm. And we just want to help magnify their voices. Mm. And not just, again, not just the ones that have already been on stage, uh, but to add additional voices to the debate and discussion. So, you know, you talk about that collective and powerful voice. And, and I'm looking at this report, this beautiful report that you did with the Institute for Policy Studies and Still I Rise, yes. which sits on my desk because I love, I just love the visual of it. But it also is a very, very powerful representation of Black women in labor movements. Yes. As leaders of movements for labor and for workers' rights. So will you just talk about how your work in workers' rights, in access to jobs and and economic justice, how does that connect with this project? So my background is in the labor movement. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I come out of the American labor movement. I've been part of the AFL-CIO for years. I did a lot of international work, uh, particularly in Africa, mm-hmm. around international issues impacting workers. Um, but about five years ago, I decided to really focus back in on the United States. And I really wanted to find ways to elevate Black workers' voices on key economic issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's so much going on in terms of inequality, poverty, jobs, uh, job loss, unemployment wage theft, you you name it. And I really wanted Black workers' voices to have a much more prominent seat at the table than they had. Mm -hmm. That led me down the path of really looking at so many ways in which Black workers are marginalized. And Black women workers are the most marginalized. And so by doing a report like And Still I Rise, which documented the stories of 27 Black women in the labor movement, Mm -hmm. it was an amazing way to uh, visually depict the power of black women. Mm -hmm. It was an amazing way to show the range of the industries these women were involved in, from construction to being hospital workers to being teachers, and Mm -hmm. just to show their full range of where they work, East Coast and West Coast and down South. It was also important to show uh, women who don't work in the traditional labor movement, women who work in more what we might call you know, the informal sector, when you look at women who are childcare providers, mm-hmm. um, but they're all very important parts of the overall economy. And they weren't being seen enough and they weren't being seen by policymakers, particularly in Washington, D.C., as critical enough actors, yeah. even though they, they are. Mm-hmm. And so part of this report was to literally to bring those faces to bear in the discussion. Mm-hmm. And so it shaped the way I, you know, for someone who's done a lot of policy for so many years and was so used to just doing really dry reports, uh, realizing the power of narrative and the power of story mm-hmm. to not only have an impact on the DC crowd, but to break through to the mainstream. I mean, our report and Still I Rise, which I did with my colleague, uh, Kim Freeman Brown, mm-hmm. 
you know, we were in Ebony and we were in uh, The Nation. We were on uh, Roland Martin's show and also in Madame Noir, but also in like a number of policy uh, journals. And so the idea to be that we could cross into a mainstream African-American culture and just have conversations mm-hmm. that Black women all over the country knew mm-hmm. already, and that these women could be a representation of not just the labor movement, but of just larger working Black women mm-hmm. in society. I mean, that was really the goal and the crossover that we wanted to have. But also, you know, you mentioned the connection to this project, Say Their Names, and the connection to uh, the larger movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter. Well, the reality is that Trayvon Martin's mother was a union member. Mm-hmm. Mike Brown's mother was a union member. Mm. Eric Garner's mother was a union member. Mm. And people don't know that. Yeah. You know, and the labor movement doesn't do enough to talk about it and uplift those sisters. Yeah. And the uh, larger sort of progressive civil rights movement doesn't sort of acknowledge, you know, their labor hat and that these were working women who were union members. And by being in a union, that helped stabilize them, at least more so economically than folks who are not in unions. And so Mm -hmm. part of it was to really, again, to elevate pieces of the puzzle to show stronger connections. Mm. Because overall, I want to build a labor movement that is far more cognizant of issues that impact African-Americans, both politically, Mm -hmm. economically, and socially. And I want a robust sort of civil rights movement to take on the mantle of economic justice more aggressively because mm-hmm. I think for black people, you really can't separate, you know, your civil rights from your economic <laughs> rights from your that's political right, rights. That's right. It's all connected. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and so for me, that, that's, that's the kind of thing that I want to push. And yeah. by I think by pushing these things visually through these reports, mm-hmm. it really helps to keep the conversation going. Mm-hmm. Um, it really keeps it, you know, again, being in D.C. where there's just so many policy papers, so many graphs and charts. Like this is just a totally different way to present information. Mm-hmm. And again, it really reaches folks on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and so many other mediums that we all want to reach, whether mm-hmm. they be millennials or, you know, you know, 70, 80 years old. Yeah. We're reaching people in the mainstream. And that's yeah. really the goal. Yeah. You mentioned some of the policies that these families have been working on. Describe some of the policy work that's happening from the, the family's perspective. Sure. And of course, it varies from city to city and municipality to municipality. Uh, and, and I think that's what's really exciting because so much of this change happens at the uh, state and local and city levels. And what I've found is that, you know, in talking to, for, for example, organizations like Color of Change, you know, they have gotten some of their best responses from their campaigns when they tie it to families directly and the families mm-hmm. participate directly in the campaign. And that's interesting because a lot of traditional policy people think, oh, wait, so you're, you're definitely watering it down when you bring in the families. But the reality is that organizations that have done that work realize that that's really a way that people else, you know, people get thousands of emails a day. They actually stop and read yeah. these ones far more and they participate far more. So mm-hmm. thereby, if there's a petition mm-hmm. attached to it or if there's a demand to talk to the mayor or the attorney general or the city council about mm-hmm. something, people are more apt to do that. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of one example. You know, working with Mothers Against Police Brutality, they are very interested in accountability issues, you know, mm-hmm. with, with sheriffs and police officers. You know, some of the things are, you know, body cameras and some of the requests that are being made, but some of them are specific changes in the way attorney generals operate, specific changes in the way grand juries um, operate, specific changes, obviously, in terms of gun control uh, within cities. Mm-hmm. Those are the kinds of policy issues that, again, will not make the headlines in the local newspaper. Yeah. 
But by working together with these grassroots organizations and working together with these activist moms and by sharing their stories through mediums like yours and so many others, you know, we help to elevate their conversations and thereby a mundane attorney general election, uh, which is such a down ballot issue, can be much more elevated come this November or next November. Mm -hmm. And again, that's the goal of what we want to do is we want to spotlight some of these issues. Mm -hmm. We want to elevate them. And we really want to show both activists and non-activists the power of having these families be included throughout the process, not just Mm -hmm. as the catalyst for something that's happening and then the protest and then say, oh, well, you you guys can be on the bench now. You know, the professional activists will take over. But realize that they are part and parcel, a part of the solution. Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. And they're also great advocates for reaching the mainstream. You know, know, I think that's the real thing. If you're already talking to the converted, that's one thing. But if you want to reach the mainstream, having the families be a part of it really elevates that conversation. That's critical, right. And you talked earlier about access and Newtown families, you know, have been, some of them have been talking about gun control and they've been very active and and they get the camera when it, you know, when they speak and they are on the Hill and they're talking, you know, they get access. So how do we get that same access for the families that you've been working with and access to what or to whom? I think it's critical. I mean, of course, these families, yeah, and, and, you know, at the recent, just last, well, two weeks ago, uh, you know, the Gresselback Caucus just uh, held their meetings here in Washington, D.C., and some families were here, and, and they've been here in the past. You know, some of them do some level of lobbying work already at the level of uh, congressional and obviously doing at the state and local level. Again, the goal is to keep building upon that and to provide the platforms where these families can speak on the regular, just like you do see some of the Newtown families mm-hmm. and some of the other families from tragedies that happened in the United States. Mm-hmm. I think part of the reality is, yes, I mean, these are primarily African-American families, and so they have less access to the media. Mm-hmm. Uh, the media is much more interested in the initial splash of what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, then the cameras just die down and they move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And what this Say Their Names project is trying to do is just be that steady drumbeat. Yeah. You know, we are trying to create our own media because not only are we doing a coffee table book, mm-hmm. but we envision doing three to five short films mm-hmm. that are about five minutes long that would really allow a deep dive into the stories. These would be short documentaries mm-hmm. uh, that would allow the families to really go much more in depth as to the human nature of, of the loss of their son or daughter or brother or sister, but also spend more time getting into what can we do as someone who watches this video. Mm -hmm. Like there would be some action steps to say, okay, what can you do? Contact this person, go to this person. And the reason we're choosing this format to do the videos is Mm -hmm. because, you know, documentaries are great. And there's been some, actually some phenomenal documentaries, one done on Jordan Davis's family about Mm -hmm. a year or so ago. But the reality is that a lot of people don't watch, you know, independent documentaries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the length of time, whether it be an hour or two hours, is sort of past the the average American's attention span Mm -hmm. by putting the... These shorter documentary films in a format that can be seen on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and other formats, uh, but by keeping the quality to a documentary type level, we really hope that people can take in a large chunk of information in a short period of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's our goal. And so to, to really create the best documentaries, I'm working with some phenomenal you know, documentary filmmakers mm-hmm. um, who have been to 
cons and, and other events they've done. An amazing film a few years ago called American Promise that you're probably yes, familiar with, yes. with Michelle Stevenson and Joe Brewster. Yeah. You know, Michelle and Joe are going to be the documentarians for these films. Mm. And they have done the whole uh, New York Times op-ed doc series on race mm-hmm. in the past couple of years as well. And so they really understand the power of this shorter format yeah. and to use it in a documentary style. Because I think there's a, some phenomenal stuff that's out there on Facebook and Twitter, but a lot of it is some of it's sensational, mm-hmm. you know. Some of it's uh, really just meant to, you know, to grab you. And I think all of it is amazingly well intended. I think all of it is um, is informative in its own way. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the, for lack of a better word, the the craftsmanship has been done. And we really think by providing people this information in these shorter formats that mm-hmm. we're really going to sort of fill an important need and really understand the way people take in information. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. we have to adjust ourselves to understand the way people take information now. And so I'm really excited about the documentaries that we're going to do. And the thought is we hope to do three to five of them from now until, you know, next year and in 2017. Mm-hmm. You know, just thinking about access to the halls of power, access to channels of media, for the families that you're working with, the victims who have been killed, mm-hmm. it's a twofold lift. Right. So it's it's about access, certainly, and making sure that media attention stays on the families and on the lives of the people who died. But also it's a reshaping of the narrative. Right. And we've, yes. we've been seeing that happening with certainly in Charlotte, North Carolina, with Keith Lamont Scott, even in Tulsa with uh, Terrence Crutcher. The question about, you know, was there PCP in Terrence Crutcher's truck mm-hmm. and, and did Keith Lamont Scott have marijuana, you know, on him at the time, you know, the the narrative that's already there, that then has to be counteracted. So it's a it's a kind of twofold lift for you and reshaping the narrative, which is true in schools, right? That's what young people are encountering when they walk into school buildings, they're encountering the very broken narrative, very broken mindset about black and brown communities already, that they're having to then overcome in addition to the, the procedural and systemic barriers to their educational success. And so when I think about the youngest of these, right, when I think about the Tamir Rices and the Trayvon Martins and the Michael Browns, you know, what steps do you see as necessary to really reshape the narrative, reshape the mindset, in addition to the, you know, the the three to five minute films, what are some other things that are necessary to really do that second part? A lot of this work obviously is in the larger context of, I mean, so much racial bias that's out there. There's so many stereotypes around young black men, young black women in, in the United States. I mean, you know, you see it running rampant in, in, in this presidential election. Yes. And you're right. So much of this is about narrative change. So much of this is about telling a counter narrative to what already exists. Mm-hmm. And it's so necessary because we have to put all of these these killings in a broader context. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to put it in a, a broader historical context. We have to put it in a broader political context. And we definitely have to put it in a broader economic context mm-hmm. because whether it be in Milwaukee or Baltimore, and then you look at youth unemployment, you look at the job creation, you look at the crime in those areas, all of these things are interconnected mm-hmm. in these stories. And the fact that these police often feel that they're playing 
some sort of role as, you know, cowboy or savior to these communities. All of that has to be put into context. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be able to tell those stories um, completely in in this work because Mm -hmm. you really have to put, you know, Freddie Gray in the context of of Baltimore. Um, You really have to put the recent situation in Milwaukee in the proper context. Mm -hmm. I mean, Milwaukee used to be one of the best cities for African-Americans and now it's been consistently rated as one of the worst cities for African-Americans, you know, unemployment levels. And you don't get that from the current, you know, mainstream media Mm -hmm. and the current narrative. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to ask the question like, you know, why was an Eric Garner or the brother in, in Baton Rouge, mm-hmm. you know, both of them were involved heavily in, you know, having to sell, whether it be CDs or loose cigarettes. It's like, you know, what was going on in terms of their uh, the overall employment opportunities, mm-hmm. educational opportunities? All of this has to be, and you just, you just don't get that. You know, we're really taking the bold step of trying to be able to provide some of that information, trying to really put it in that level of contextual setting mm-hmm. so that people understand a much broader sense of who these people were uh, holistically, you know, what their lives were like prior to, you know, what has been left in their wake. All those pieces are our goal because we're combating a lot of myths and narratives and biases as it pertains to young African-American women and men in the United States, mm-hmm. um, how the media, you know, portrays them, how they benefit from the portrayal of them. And so, yeah, we really do have to create an alternative media structure in order to really present a full story. And that's what we hope you know, in some small way, the Save Their Names project is. I can't wait for the project to come out. And one of the reasons I really appreciate that you are doing this is because it's an overall project. It's in context that you have that context. You yourself have that history as part of your expertise and experience, mm-hmm. but you are portraying that in, um, certainly in the, the And Still I Rise project, which is wonderfully done. Um, and it sounds like in the Save Their Names project as well. We hear conversations about boys and men of color, and and we're hearing conversations about women and girls of color. Certainly, there are different experiences that Black boys and men in particular have with police and policing that is different for Black women and girls. And I think that the way that you are framing this as a community-based, community-driven, contextual project, holistic project, is really important. Will you just talk about the distinction that's being made between kind of boys and men of color and their experiences with police and women and girls and how you see this project fitting into that dialogue. Though the experiences are different between boys and men of color and women and girls of color, our goal is to uplift both experiences equally. Mm-hmm. And also talking about the transgender community mm-hmm. uh, and LGBT community, but we want to show a full view of the impact of police and vigilante brutality on African-American families. And so, you know, we have been talking to, for example, Rakia Boyd's brother and the work that he's done to really keep her name in the news in Chicago and really try to push for political change in Chicago. Mm -hmm. You know, we hope to connect up with, for example, like Sandra Bland's family Mm -hmm. and be able to tell her story because that was, I think, a story that really elevated all of our consciousness, you know, less than two years ago. I think, you know, for for men and boys, obviously, you know, the majority of police and vigilante brutalities on African-Americans happened to, uh, you know, African-American males. I remember when Philando Castile was killed, I read a report that said he was the 123rd, mm-hmm. 124th African-American male killed in 2016. Mm-hmm. So the, the numbers are, are, are staggering by police. Yeah. So the numbers are, are staggering. But we really don't want to create that level of separation. Mm -hmm. We think that both stories are so important. We think that the way police impact 
African-American girls and how they impact African-American boys are maybe different, but the mental impact on the families, the destabilization on the community, just the cold chills that it sends through and reverberates through the community. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that has a, that, that has an equal impact. Yeah. And also, I think the media, you know, already does not tell enough stories about what's happening to African-American women and girls. And so I think we are going to try to, I won't say overcompensate for that, but I think we mm-hmm. really want to make sure that all voices are really heard in this conversation. Mm-hmm. And again, that includes LGBT stories and transgender mm-hmm. stories, because we really want to make that conscious effort to show people, you know, what has been happening to the black community between police and vigilante brutality. Mm-hmm. And so that's really, I think, a conscious effort on our part yeah. you know, to try to do that. Which opens the door for others to talk about the ways in which communities experience trauma, even when, you know, a young woman encounters police and maybe isn't killed, but does experience some severe abuse and harassment and trauma at the hands of police and and how that then that trauma plays out in community and in relationships, et cetera. No, definitely. I mean, you know, I think the impact on African-American communities is so deep. Even I think of my children and uh, the friends of the family. The number of conversations that we have and the number of times we gather at the school or outside of school just to talk about these things and figure out how do we talk about these things to our children or do Mm -hmm. we talk these things about Mm -hmm. our children and just checking in on ourselves to see how we're doing. You know, I think the impact on the black community and the trauma that the overall African-American community is facing is is huge. Mm -hmm. And I think there's recently been some really interesting pieces just even in the last week or so mm-hmm. on this that I've been reading. And I think it's just great that these pieces are coming up because if you just look at social media, you can see the impact with the hashtags. I mean, some of the younger activists have been amazing in terms of the ideas that they've come up with. But if you really look at it, it's kind of sad and scary that people have to come up with these ideas mm-hmm. and say, you know, if they, you know, arrest me, then this, or if this happens yeah. to me, then I mean, it shows an amazing level of creativity and ingenuity and activism, but it also shows that the times that we're in, that um, that these things even have to be done. Mm-hmm. And so that level of trauma is is deep, and it's obviously built upon you know pre-existing trauma yeah. as well. It's not like this is brand new. And I think so much of that has to come out. Mm-hmm. And with schools and school children, part of I, I didn't mention the last critical piece of this Say Their Names project is that we want to develop educational curriculum mm-hmm. around the videos that we're developing, mm-hmm. specifically for this purpose. Because mm-hmm. I mean, our goal would be for study groups to watch some of the short videos and then have conversations about them, you know, guided conversations. Mm. You know, we'd want those activists who could use these videos in terms of training that they might do in their workplace mm-hmm. or with judges or police officer trainings that people could watch these videos and then have conversations, guided conversations as to what they've seen about, you know, racial bias and prejudice, mm-hmm. uh, you know, racism and police brutality and hearing how the families feel about it. Mm-hmm. Because maybe someone might say, well, that wasn't my intent. You know, but that is yes. the that is the ramifications of what mm-hmm. has occurred. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the the third sort of leg in the stool yeah. of how we see this project is that we really are striving to develop that kind of educational curriculum so that someone can watch this video by themselves or with a group, but then really unpack it and really have some guided questions and have mm-hmm. a place to where they can even seek out more resources on a range of things depending on their level of interest. Yeah. So, Mark, you may have heard that there is an election coming up. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And some hot debates coming up. Yeah. So I would love to get your thoughts about how this project fits into some of the conversation that we've been having or hearing or witnessing around the election. And are there policy pieces that the families have been advocating for that might potentially move with this election? 
And what can people do to be supportive? Even though this project won't be completed by the time of the election, we definitely hope that ideally, you know, that President Hillary Clinton and her team, uh, particularly the attorney general, we could envision, you know, next year, you know, bringing together a group of mothers and families to sit down with the next attorney general mm-hmm. uh, to share with them, you know, maybe the not, maybe not the final version of the report, but to really share with them these stories and show them how we have systematically documented these stories and hold conversations and panels in the halls of Congress mm-hmm. around these issues. You know, we envision down the road having conversations at the brand new African American Smithsonian Museum mm-hmm. and having sessions with policymakers and media outlets mm-hmm. and allowing these families collectively to talk about, you know, what what would there be their 100-day agenda mm-hmm. uh, for the new attorney general around some of these critical issues. You know, what level of training is needed for different municipalities? Mm-hmm. Where should the AG's office do more reports like they've done in Baltimore mm-hmm. and Ferguson and really do a deep dive and expose police brutality and corruption at a much deeper level? By bringing these voices together in a collective and concentrated manner, mm-hmm. I think it allows for us to say, this group of people want to sit down with you and talk about these issues. Mm-hmm. And we think that power is going to be magnified by the number of families we bring together Mm -hmm. and by the power of how we can share this project in social media. That is, you know, some of the ideas that we're having. And we also can, can definitely envision in 2017 thinking of this as a bit of a roadshow. You could go to where there are hot spots, like the, you know, sadly the next Charlotte, but Mm -hmm. you could also really strategize ahead of time and say, look, you know, we want to have this level of conversation in Chicago. We really want to go back to Dallas or Houston and have mm-hmm, this kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. We yeah. want to go back to Baltimore and have this conversation and hold that at forums, whether it be at universities or, you know, uh, local African-American museums and really alert the media and the politicians that this is a conversation that is bigger than your one city. Having these conversations with city councils. Yeah. But again, not only bringing the families that may live in that particular city, uh, because the city council might think, oh, we can we can roll this particular family over. Mm-hmm. But by, by bringing more of a collective voice and saying, this group of families wants to talk to you about these particular issues and say, hey, we may have had a solution that we used in Albuquerque that might be you know, pertinent to Baltimore mm-hmm. and really present it as not only, again, their stories, but also the solutions that they've derived based upon their experience. Mm-hmm. And are there policies that are ripe for activism and organizing? I think that, you know, really looking at the the power base of the different attorney generals is something that a lot of groups are looking at. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't, there's no there's no um, one. Well, I don't want to say magic bullet, but there's no there's no one solution or one size that fits all. Mm-hmm. I think that there are a range of policy ideas that people are starting to really formulate and crystallize. But I think we also have to be clear that a lot of these organizations are truly grassroots. I mean, they are mm-hmm. working on ridiculously shoestring budgets. Yeah. A lot of them are not official 501c3s. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not getting large grant funding. Uh, they're not on anyone's docket for the next, you know, funding cycle. <laughs> you know, they they are really doing this work, yeah. um, you know, out of their own pockets. A lot of these families, of course, are, are grieving themselves, yeah. you know, exponentially. And so it is really, really hard because, of course, it's, it's amazingly hard to advocate on behalf of a family member that's been lost because you're still going through the process of grieving. Sure. And every time you tell the story, you almost 
reopen the wound, mm -hmm. but you do it because you don't want any more future stories to have to be told. Mm -hmm. And so it's a real combination of how we have to, you know, work with these families, but also the, the collectiveness of it is also a real support network. Mm -hmm. And the families build upon each other and they, their courage builds the more time they spend with each other. Yeah. You know, I think by being able to show that more publicly, mm -hmm. uh, by being able to show that more frequently, mm -hmm. uh, by being able to show that more aggressively, then I think it does build upon some of the amazing policy work that the Advancement Project, which is one of our yeah. partners on this project, or Color of Change, which mm -hmm. is one of our partners on this project, can do. Because as they're thinking about policy all the time, mm -hmm. we're also trying to help them think about vehicles and mechanisms to move that policy. Yeah. Because I think there's no shortage of policy ideas. Of course, it's been almost impossible to move anything mm -hmm. with this Congress or the last Congress. Mm -hmm. So by taking some of the stuff to the state and local level and by grafting on some of the great policy stuff that some of these organizations are doing with some of the families that can be phenomenal advocates for it. Mm -hmm. And then by really queuing up the media to pay attention to it when it actually happens. Mm -hmm. So when that tree falls in the forest, yes, there's, a lot, there's, there's a lot of cameras there to capture it. <laughs> That's really where we, we sort of see our sweet spot, you know, in this work. Mm-hmm. We have been trying to close out the show with a story, recognizing that stories are so critical to shaping mindsets and perceptions. And you've been collecting stories. And I can't imagine, just as a, as a mom, I can't imagine the pain that the families must be experiencing. I can think about the stories I would want people to know about my kids and who they were, you know, and what their joys were, what the things were that, that made them upset on a day-to-day -day basis. So what are some of the stories that you're hearing about the, the victims and what has surprised you and in those stories and what has made you laugh out loud? But the story is definitely, of course, vary so much from the families and vary so much from the cities and locations and, of course, the, the situations that the victims found themselves in. But the humanness of the, the stories has, has been the most important. Because just like so many activists, you, you just see usually on the news or in your Instagram, just one picture of that person. I mean, that's all, that's all you ever get. And that one picture, you know, and, and you know, just like any selfie we might take or whatever, that one picture may or may not be the greatest visual depiction of the person to begin with, mm -hmm. but it's all we've got. And by just going beyond the picture, a few months ago, I think it was in February, I visited uh, Eric Garner's mother in Staten Island. Mm -hmm. And I visited her in her apartment where she has a sort of a dedicated shrine to, to Eric. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I noticed that she had some inhalers mm -hmm. on the wall. And my older daughter is, is six and she uses inhalers. So I'm definitely familiar with them and, and the fact that they're sort of color coded. And I, I noticed the orange and the blue inhaler. Mm -hmm. And I didn't actually realize that Eric Garner actually was asthmatic. Mm. So when he was saying, I can't breathe, yeah. it wasn't also solely because the police were attacking him and, and literally strangling him. I mean, if that were not enough, but he was actually asthmatic. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I didn't know that. And with all the things I'd read and all the protests that I'd been involved with and friends and colleagues had been involved with, like that level of humanness of the person, mm -hmm. you know, sort of the gentle giant that he was, was just not known. Mm -hmm. And so it's in some ways, it's, it can be as little as that in terms of just humanizing them and realizing that your neighbor really is your neighbor. And despite all of the right wing rhetoric you may be hearing on talk radio or Fox News that is sort of proliferating our airways around race and racism, and, and, you know, who a black man is and what mm. they could potentially do to you. Mm -hmm. Just the human element of it 
in some ways changes everything because, mm-hmm. you know, I've got kids, you know, even though my kids are only, you know, six year old and yeah. Eric was 44. Just yeah. that human element of taking care of your child and knowing that your child was asthmatic. That was just a connection I hadn't expected. Mm-hmm. And that was beyond the politics. And that was mm-hmm. beyond the, again, the, the political connection that I felt with the story. It was just a human connection. Mm-hmm. And so I want to be able to find ways to tell in every story a real human story of parent to child or brother to sister or uncle to you know, niece or what have yeah. you. We all can understand that. And then put the story in the context of the loss because, you know, all of us could imagine how impossible it would be to go on, you know, after the loss of a family member. And then again, infuse that with, you know, what can you do? Mm -hmm. uh, What are folks already doing? How you can be involved in this? And then again, even more so, how you can continue to spread the word, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly for, you know, uh, not just the African-American community, but obviously for the larger society in, in the United States and the white community to really be cognizant and focused on that mm-hmm. uh, and not just look at the numbers. On average, three people are shot a day in the United States. Numbers can become a little just overwhelming. overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to stop and to peel that back and to think about it and to think about what, what you would do if it was was your life mm-hmm. and to think about the, just the unjust nature, uh, to think about you know what's, what we just saw in Tulsa and Charlotte and you know what we saw in Milwaukee a few weeks ago and mm-hmm. Baton Rouge a few weeks before that mm-hmm. and realize you know just the toll that that has taken on the families after the lights go out in the headlines, you ask yourself the question, what can you do now mm-hmm. that you've gotten this information? You know, what exactly can you do? Mm-hmm. And I think once more mainstream people start asking themselves that question, I think that's where a wealth of activists can jump in and fill that gap. Yeah. But you really got to get more people asking the question of what they can do. And I think that's really where, we, again, where we think our sort of sweet spot is in this movement. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. really appreciate your voice. This has been very powerful. Mark Bayard is the director of the Black Worker Initiative at the Institute for Policy Studies. He is also the founder of the Lee Bayard Group. And his new project is Say Their Names, collecting the stories of families whose children have been killed by police or vigilantes. Mark, if folks want to reach you or find you online, what is the best way for them to do that? Probably, I guess, Twitter. My hashtag is at Mark Bayard. I think that's probably the simplest and easiest way for folks to uh, to reach out. There's also the Say Their Names website, uh, saytheirnames.org. Saytheirnames.org. Thanks to all of you for listening in. Remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and sign up for the Communities for Just Schools Fund newsletter at cjsfund.org. Thank you. Have a wonderful week.